Welcome to the Powers That Be Daily, Puck's podcast focused on the intersection of Wall Street, Washington, Silicon Valley, and Hollywood, and the players who run it all. I'm Peter Hamby. It's Tuesday, August 30th. Ukraine has just launched a counteroffensive against Russian forces in the country's southeast, attempting to reclaim territory lost early in the war. And today, Julia Yaffe is here to tell us what's happening, why Ukraine is so emboldened, and what Vladimir Putin is doing to fight back. And later on, Ben Landy talks to Tina Wynn about Sarah Palin. She could be heading to Congress in the race for Alaska's lone house seat. Wasilla's most famous hockey mom opened the door to Trumpism back in 2008 with her brand of grievance-driven populism. But where does she stand in today's Republican Party? We'll hear about all that and more on today's episode of The Powers That Be. Happy Tuesday, everybody. Welcome to The Powers That Be. On Monday, Ukraine launched a counteroffensive aiming to take back parts of their country in the southeast that Russia had captured earlier in the year. We are still getting reports as we're taping this, but if we're talking Ukraine and we're talking Russia, we are obviously talking to Julia Yaffe. How are you doing, Julia? I'm pretty good. How are you, Peter? Good. Well, walk us through what exactly is happening right now in Ukraine. Well, uh, we've been waiting for this for quite a while. There has been talk about a Ukrainian counteroffensive for a few months now. Even when it sounded like a Ukrainian counteroffensive was just like, are you fucking joking? When they were losing a lot of ground earlier this summer in the east in Donetsk to Russian armies. But later this summer, Russian armies got bogged down more and more. They started moving ever more slowly. The Ukrainian army was ever more successful at holding them back Mm -hmm. and started puncturing holes in this facade of the Russian offensive, summer offensive. And now it seems like the long-awaited Ukrainian counteroffensive to recapture territory that it had lost to the Russian army is here. It's worth mentioning that Russia now controls 20% of Ukrainian territory. It's a lot. Mm -hmm. It's also worth mentioning Ukraine has modified its goals in terms of what victory would look like, right? Mm -hmm. Earlier this summer, when things weren't looking so good for Ukraine, Ukraine was saying, we're not going to negotiate anything that doesn't look like the way Ukrainian borders looked on February 23rd. 2022. That would mean ceding Crimea. That would mean ceding chunks of the Donbass to Russia. Now they're saying, we don't want to talk about anything unless it looks like Ukraine looked when it gained its independence in 1991. Hmm. And what you've seen in the lead up to this counteroffensive, which has been kind of incredible to watch, is just these incredible strikes all over Crimea, pretty much in every county in Crimea. You've seen strikes in Russia, in Russian regions bordering on Ukraine. Mm -hmm. You've also been seeing these targeted assassinations of these occupational authorities. Just today, you saw the Russians confirming the death of a figure of Russian occupational authority Mm -hmm. in the Kherson region. He was shot to death. His girlfriend was stabbed in the throat. The Ukrainians are not fucking around and they want it all back. And if earlier this summer that looked like absolutely batshit crazy, never going to happen. 
now it's like, all right, maybe they might get it. You mentioned the phrase long awaited, and I was looking at Twitter and saw some articles that said the phrase long awaited counteroffensive finally begins. But, you know, I'm not saying this was totally unexpected, but it does feel like Volodymyr Zelensky and Ukraine are approaching this with some cockiness and some bravado. And, you know, obviously, even just last week, the U.S. committed even more money to Ukraine to support the efforts, weapons, etc. How much of these new attacks are based on new weaponry and new money? And how much of it is based on Russia being perceived as a little weak right now, if that's even true? Like, where is this coming from, in other words? So I think it's a combination of the two. So some of it is, or a lot of it is, what the West has given Ukraine. So things like high Mars rockets, you know, these high accuracy, long range rockets that the U.S. gave to Ukraine over the summer that have allowed Ukraine to hit Russian uh, supply chains kind of behind the Russian military outposts, if that makes sense. They're hitting the bridges behind where a Russian unit is and cutting them off. And that makes it very difficult to resupply these units. It makes them pull back in some cases. It makes the supply routes difficult. And also it's the fact that the Russian military, you know, we thought they were 12 foot giants uh, in January and February of this year, but six months into this conflict, they're pretty much exhausted. The conflict has destroyed pretty much all of their really good machinery. Uh-huh. They've for months now have been using their mothballed old Soviet shit. They've lost about 70,000 men to death and injury. They're not doing a full kind of recruitment or draft. Putin right before the weekend announced that he's trying to kind of recruit more people, but people are really doubtful about how they're going to do that. They've had to resort to using private missionary companies to recruit in prisons. People don't really want to fight this war, but you know, it took all of six months for the Russian army to pretty much exhaust itself. And military experts I talked to say there's not all that much more that the Russian military can throw into this fight. So it's kind of a combination of things. And then the third factor, which is this kind of ineffable, unmeasurable thing, which is the spirit. The Russian army doesn't really know why the fuck it's there. And the Ukrainians are fighting for their homes. They're fighting for their families. They have a very clear idea of what they're fighting for. And they know that justice and right and and good is on their side and that they're fighting evil. Uh, They have very high morale as opposed to the Russians who are fighting because they think they're going to get paid well. Uh And that's maybe the best of what you're going to get on the Russian side. So that was certainly the narrative earlier on when it came to morale and each side's point of view. The Ukrainian defense of Kyiv, for example, was just like an amazing story of bravery and sacrifice in every way. And the Ukrainians have just been emboldened the whole time to fight back, whereas the Russians were just like, why are we here? When they got captured, they were like, I thought we were fighting Nazis. I think that's still the case. Okay, that's what I'm asking. Even now, six months later, that's the case. Yeah. I mean, as much as the as the Russian propaganda machine has worked on the population back home, and I think it is working, the army is still in the field. And I don't know how much gotcha. they're seeing of it. They're like they're seeing some of this propaganda on TV back on the base. But most of the time, you know, they're out fighting. 
and they're seeing what the reality looks like much more so than what people are back home in Moscow or Saratov or Yekaterinburg or whatever village uh, they're in. They see the reality. They see that they're not really fighting Nazis. They see that they're not welcome. They see the kind of crimes their army is committing. They also see that they're not getting paid. You know, and I think more and more stories are getting around about the military not paying these families. A lot of these Russian soldiers are coming from very economically depressed regions, from very poor families, and they're going in it just for the money. They don't care about Nazis. They don't care about the great Russian empire. They're going in it just for, into it just for the money. And they're signing contracts that say that if they're killed, their families will get a payout in a certain amount, but then the Russia they're killed. And then the Russian army says, well, they're missing an action. And until we have a body, we can't pay you. And of course the Russian military can decide whether there's a body or not. Right. There's been a case where a woman's adopted son joined the army was killed. The military said, well, you're his adopted mother. And we don't have the full documentation about how, you know, whether you're really his adopted mother and we can't give you the payout. So like, but there's more and more of the circulating and that does a lot to undermine morale too. Just to break out where these Ukrainian efforts are happening, Donetsk, you mentioned, Kherson was one of the first cities to fall, like the bit, one of the mm-hmm. first big cities to fall right on the Black Sea, key port. I can imagine Ukrainian citizens, civilians are helping out the Ukrainian forces trying to move in in every way. But over in Donetsk, I mean, even before the invasion, those were Russian kind of puppet states. In other words, is the population uh, in Donetsk more Russian and and supporters of Russia than back over in Kherson? And therefore, will that be a harder nut to crack for Ukraine? So from what I've heard, Kherson, there's quite a bit of sympathy to, for the Russians when the Russians first invaded. Oh, interesting. Uh, and, and, and I don't know, obviously, how much that's held, you know, in the mm-hmm. course of the Russian occupation, because what you've seen in a lot of these places since 2014 is that there was support for the Russians based on what they saw on Russian TV. So based of, on the Russian propaganda they saw. And then I went to Crimea, for example, in 2017, and I talked to the activists in the Russian spring who watched a lot of Russian TV in 2014, came out and said, we want Russia to annex us. We want to be part of Russia because we saw this Russian TV and Russia sounds fucking great. And then Russia annexes them. And that means Russian cops come to Crimea and Russian courts come to Crimea and Russian corruption comes to Crimea. And within, you know, three years, all of these activists of the Russian spring have criminal cases open against them and they deeply regret being activists for this. And one, you know, and these are Cossacks. They love the Russian empire and they're pretty deeply anti-Semitic. And one of them, I remember him telling me like, you know, maybe I should just escape and ask for asylum in Israel. <laughs> like, uh, really? Sure. Anyway, but so like, <laughs> so I in. think that's what that's what you see in a lot of these places. As for Donetsk, uh, or like the the Donbas, and in the areas where there's been a lot of fighting uh, since 2014, a lot of people have fled those areas. Like millions of people have fled and the people who did stay were either too old or too poor to leave, or they really were pro-Russian. In Kherson, they didn't really have a chance. But since then, the realities of Russian occupation, including Russian soldiers shooting live ammunition into crowds of protesters, including 
the Russians cutting off communications with the outside world, including in places like Mariupol, them condemning whole blocks and just giving up on rebuilding the city and cholera spreading everywhere. Mm-hmm. And hundreds of journalists and activists and former city officials disappearing. I can't imagine they won a lot of hearts and minds. So it's not totally surprising that already in the first day of the counteroffensive, the Ukrainian army says it has seized four villages in the Kherson region. And that's just in the first day. So before I let you go, I can't let you leave without asking you about Dasha Dugina and the piece you wrote last week. A lot of my friends sent me this piece and like, wow, like it's it's interesting how much this has captured people's attention. If you haven't followed it, she is a sort of Russian state TV talking head and the daughter of quote unquote philosopher slash fascist <laughs> Alexander Dugin. Would you say Putin ally, Putin advisor, something like that? What, what's been the fallout from that in Russia? Because you mentioned earlier that Putin is trying to sort of use propaganda to rally population, but also to maybe recruit more troops. Is that playing out right now? So the FSB has been so incredibly, literally incredibly, unbelievably speedy in cracking this case. Today, they identified, (laughs) we're recording this on a Monday, they've identified yet another Ukrainian accomplice. Meanwhile, it's taken them years to not crack the cases of murdered journalists and murdered opposition activists. So it's all just, you know, it all just goes to show you where there's a will, there's a way in Russia. But it raises a lot of questions about to what extent was the Kremlin using the party of war, which is the kind of the hawks to the right of Putin? Because as hard as this is for Americans to imagine, Putin is a kind of moderating force inside the Kremlin. He's the one saying like, no, okay, guys, no, 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 no. Let's maybe not nuke Ukraine. <laughs> like, That's, I've um, never heard that actually said before, but yikes. yeah, no, he is. There's, de- there's definitely people that are harsher and far to the right of him and more hawkish than he is. And I think Dasha Dugana and her dad were very much of that persuasion. What was interesting is, you know, Less than a week after her murder, he Putin announces a massive expansion of the Russian military, which we have yet to see if he'll be able to fulfill, if if he'll be able to fill the ranks. Mm-hmm. But, you know, people were expecting a mass mobilization. People were expecting him to wage a mass war and to use the sacrifice of this virginal kind of Joan of Arc figure, which is what, you know, state media is trying to portray her as. If they're going to use it as a way to kind of go harder in Ukraine. It seems like the Kremlin is still trying to kind of pump the brakes. So I don't know it's still super weird what happened to her and who went after her, but it does seem like Putin did use her death a little bit to expand the Russian military and to beef it up, which I would say would help in the counteroffensive, but it's going to take a long time for him to Mm-hmm. recruit all those people, train them, send them into the fight. And by then we'll see what happens to the Ukrainian counteroffensive. All right, Julia, thanks so much for joining us. Keep us posted on everything you're learning as this story develops. We'll see you next week. Thanks, Peter. Coming up, can Sarah Palin see Capitol Hill from her house? Then Landy and Tina Wynn talk about Palin's chances of going to Congress. Welcome back. I'm Ben Landy here with Tina Wynn in our actual studio in New York City. Hey, Tina. Hey, Ben. Can't believe I get to see you face to face. 
It is a delight. So I wanted to talk to you today about a woman that we haven't heard about for a little while, at least I haven't. With apologies to our listeners in Alaska, I had no idea, really, that Sarah Palin was running for Congress and actually is on the verge, potentially, of joining the House of Representatives for as few as a couple weeks. Can you explain a little bit what's going on? Sure. So uh, Alaska's one congressional seat, which was held by a guy named Don Young, uh, was vacated recently because he passed away. That meant that there was a new, freshly open congressional seat for Trump to do his MAGA loyalty test upon. And there was another candidate, local businessman Nick Begich. He seemed like a shoo-in. And then Trump went, no, 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 this man is not MAGA enough. The person who really needs to run for this seat is Sarah Palin. Palin is now in contention to replace Don Young in Congress, which is a bit of a retro flashback to someone who was populist before populism was even a thing. Now there's a possibility she's going to be making this comeback. It still hasn't happened yet because they're still tabulating the votes and uh, there's ranked choice voting. Did you know that that was a thing that they're doing here? I only learned that in preparation for talking to you just now. So Alaska is actually super interesting right now because I think the first in the country to experiment with a ranked choice voting system They just did it in the New York City's mayor's race. So basically, if you have five candidates and you rank them from the person you want the most to the person you want the least, every round they get rid of the bottom scorer and then take their votes and then tabulate it uh, with the rest of the candidates. So whoever might not have been your number one, but is your second choice, they will win your vote. And it goes into as many rounds as it needed until one person wins overall. In theory, this should lead to less extreme candidates who are less polarizing because it promotes the idea of a consensus candidate, which is why it's highly possible that Sarah Palin will lose this election. Well, tell me more about that. Why is Palin likely to lose? Isn't Alaska like 60% Republican? It is, but it's the same dynamic that saw a lot of crossover votes in 2018 or 20. 20 in a way where the Republican candidate is so extreme that a normal Republican would rather have a Democrat who is more centrist and normal than someone who was on the fringe. So Nick Begich, he was a good establishment pick, but the people who supported him are not necessarily going to support Sarah Palin because she she was the progenitor to screaming MAGA, but she is close enough and unpopular enough in the state of Alaska that she could conceivably turn off a whole bunch of moderate Democrat voters who will switch and vote for the Democrat Mary Peltola, who right now is actually leading Palin in balloting. They're still trying to figure out who the next round of votes will go to. But as of this recording, she's leading Palin by at least like 39 to 30. So it's possible that by choosing a more unpopular extreme MAGA candidate, Trump may have inadvertently handed the election to a Democrat, which is just not good for the party overall. Peter Hamby wrote a piece back in February 2021, I think, about Sarah Palin's disappearance from the national scene, if not from public life entirely, definitely from the public consciousness. And he was wondering whether Trump might eventually follow the same trajectory. Not exactly the same situation. Obviously, Trump was president for four years. He has a grip on the party like Palin never quite had. But I think people forget how much 
Sarah Palin dominated media coverage for a number of years. And what's interesting is looking back, her provocations look almost quaint compared to some of the people who have come after her, including Trump, of course, but also like Marjorie Taylor Greene, people who have taken up the kind of old Palin lane in the GOP. What stature do you think Palin would actually have and what kind of position would she hold in the party if she returned to Congress? That's really interesting. So in this piece that I'm writing for Puck that should be published Wednesday or so, I talked to a couple of MAGA consultants, MAGA communications officials about where they saw Palin fitting into the movement. One of them made the point that she's not necessarily MAGA so much as she is early Tea Party. And one of the differentiating factors is that Palin is not a digital native, whereas, say, Matt Gates or Marjorie Taylor Greene are just really quick with the Twitter finger and can immediately punch back against someone and make a lot of their political capital come from the internet. Palin does not do that. Palin probably aged out of being able to do that. It's not something that comes easy to her. So the type of fighting that gets rewarded in the MAGA movement, it's not going to be something she can easily generate. It's interesting that you say that she's sort of fallen out of step with the culture on the right wing, uh, especially because she has had this sort of slow slide into irrelevance. I mean, she for a number of years, was a a commentator on Fox News. After she resigned as Alaska governor, she had one year where she did a reality show for TLC. There was a second follow-up reality show after that. She was sort of here and there. I mean, there was a a subscription-based TV channel gig she did. She had a best-selling book uh, immediately after the 2008 election. But since then, we haven't really seen or heard that much from Palin, except for these occasional rare appearances on TV. To what extent do you think that Palin really wants to be back in the political action versus how much is this an attempt to get back on television? I couldn't begin to say. I mean, she just came off of a giant libel lawsuit against The New York Times, which she lost. There's something to be said about her coming back to Congress as some sort of avenging angel saying, haha, I guess what libs, I'm back. Is she necessarily the face of the MAGA movement anymore? I would venture to say no, just because she's been out of the spotlight too long. And I don't know whether she would fight the sort of culture war fights that give you credence within that movement. Well, like you said, you've got some new reporting on Palin that is coming out tomorrow after this episode airs. So stay tuned for that at puck.news. Tina, thanks for stopping by. Thanks for having me. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of The Powers That Be. As a reminder, The Powers That Be is the official podcast of Puck. We'd like to thank Ben Landy, Liz Goff, and Alex Bigler for their editorial and production guidance. If you like what you hear, please share with a friend. It really helps us keep delivering the inside scoop that only Puck can offer. Follow us on Twitter at Puck News. I'm Peter Hamby. See you tomorrow. This has been a presentation of Cadence 13 Studios. Please listen, rate, review, and follow all episodes wherever you get your podcasts. The Powers That Be Daily is executive produced by John Kelly, co-founder of Puck, and Chris Corcoran, chief content officer and founding partner of Cadence 13. 